0: Friends, welcome. We're thrilled to have you here learning with us at Uri Litsedek, the Orthodox Social Justice Organization, working together to combat injustice and oppression on many different fronts, working on the border on a daily basis, have supported over 50,000 asylum seekers over the last two years down at the border. Of course, working um, for the uh, better treatment of immigrant workers in the kosher establishments, doing a lot of education. We just announced our, our new leadership development cohort of modern Orthodox students on campuses across the country. We just received a grant from the AJC to combat uh, anti-Semitism in progressive spaces. Many, many great things going on and we're now recruiting for our summer fellowship in Manhattan. So hope you all uh, can continue to tap in with us. We are thrilled today to be learning with Rabbi Daniel Buskila on the Svartic quest for social justice. We know many of you are tapping in through Facebook Live. We will monitor your questions there. Some of you are here in the Zoom room And the high majority of you are either on SoundCloud or YouTube. So we hope you'll enjoy from that end as well. Uh, Rabbi Basquilla will have a uh, sharing his his screen where he'll have some sources to share with us from that end.
1: uh, Can't hear you, you lost your uh, audio.
0: Let me tell you a little bit about Rabbi Basquilla, although I know many of you know him. Uh, He is the international director of the Sephardic Educational Center and the rabbi of the Westwood Village Synagogue. He writes and lectures about the halachic and philosophical works of classic Sephardic rabbis, the literature of Nobel Prize winner S.Y. Agnon and Rav Chaim Sabato, and various themes in halacha and Jewish thought. His ongoing writing includes his Sephardic Torah weekly blog and his monthly Jewish journal column on Shaya Agnon's literature. And he is working on an English language translation of the writings of Rabbi Benzion and Meir Chai Uziel, he holds a BA from UCLA and Smicha from Yeshiva University. It is a del- delight. I was just telling Rabbi Basquilla that um, his, uh, his, his, his passion is only outdone with his Torah sophistication. And so we are thrilled to have someone who both cares about and thinks about and works on social justice and is a true Torah scholar uh, to guide us today. So Rabbi Basquilla, thank you so much for being here. Our, our plan, friends, is to have a shear for about 35, 40, 45 minutes. I then have about 15, 20 minutes for a QA. Q&A. So thank you so much.
1: Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Rav Rob, uh, Rob Shmuley. And thank you so much uh, as well to Eddie Chavez Calderon uh, for reaching out. It's a pleasure, uh, Eddie, to get to know you. I look forward to getting to know you more. Rav Shmuley and I go back a few years here in Los Angeles. And uh, as I mentioned, when I got on uh, without getting into all of that, um, but um, let, suffice it to say that uh, there is really no organization in the Jewish world that I know that I feel more appropriately to be starting my day with on January 6th um, than Uri Litzedek. Uh With all the work that they're doing and all the work that they continue to do, it's really uh, a great honor to be teaching on a subject very near and dear to our hearts not only to my heart, the, the idea of social justice and uh, the rabbinic, uh, Sephardic view on this and um, how I feel that the Sephardic rabbis have uh, very often had without actually even declaring social justice as the, the flag that they wave. Uh, unfortunately today, um, and, I, and I think it's wonderful, you know, this, is a, this is a necessity. An organization like Uri Tzedek uh, calling out tzedek tzedek tirdof, justice, justice you shall pursue, is unfortunately a necessity today in the traditional communities, in the Orthodox communities, because there's been a lack of emphasis placed on social issues, when indeed you don't have to go further than the Torah itself to see how deeply social justice is very much a part of the Torah's legislation, anything regarding foreigners and strangers and uh, legislation regarding uh, Shemitah, the law, the sabbatical laws and uh, all sorts of financial laws. Parshat Mishpatim in and of itself is one of the greatest statements on social justice. For whatever reason, uh, that's kind of taken a backseat to other issues. And it's so important to bring this voice out. In the Sephardic communities, I don't think, you know, I'm I'm going to start out by saying when we say Sephardic communities, uh, I don't ever really try to speak on behalf of saying like this is a collective and this is as a whole a rule. There are, of course, different communities spread throughout the Middle East, North Africa, the Iberian Peninsula, all that consider themselves Sephardic communities that each had their own style, their own flavor, their own rabbis, and their own genre. But as an overall rule, the Sephardic quest, if you will, for social justice was never really, as I said, a quest, a flag that they wa- that they waved or a banner that they had to wave. It was simply the way of life. And there's a reason for that. The reason being is that in the Sephardic world, in throughout the Sephardic world, we never had, we never developed in the Sephardic world, any network of what we call ivory tower yeshivot. If you think of what the yeshiva world represents, on one hand, it produced magnificent scholarship. It produced some of the most brilliant Talmudists and thinkers, but the yeshiva world is set up to be an ivory tower whereby people are gathered and sequestered from the realities of society. They don't live in the community. Uh, They're specifically asked to not live amongst the community. They don't deal with the community's problems. They don't have to confront the social or religious issues within any community. They deal with what's going on in the Bet Midrash. This is, from time immemorial, the world of what the yeshivot was. Therefore, in yeshivot, it's customary to be quite stringent when it comes to rulings and halakha, because you can be, because you're not dealing with people, you're not dealing with real life, you're dealing with a handful of scholars who live and breathe almost the equivalent, we don't like to use this terminology, but like a monastery, a group of monks who are sitting. And studying, and they're oblivious sometimes to what's going on in the real world. When it comes to the Sephardic rabbis, this is a this is what I'm about to say is true by and large for the majority of the Sephardic communities. There was no network of yeshivot. So you're going to ask yourself the question: What yeshiva did the rabbis go to? Take for example, Rav Ovadiah Yosef, the great Sephardic sage of the 20th and uh, early part of the 21st century. Rabbi Yosef, where did he study in yeshiva growing up? He was not a product of the yeshiva world. There was no network of yeshiva at where he came from. He studied Torah with private tutors. He studied Torah in the synagogue. And yes, eventually he came to the one Sephardic yeshiva in the old city of Jerusalem, the grand yeshiva Parat Yosef. But this yeshiva was in no way sequestered from society. And so all of these chachamim, the moment that they became any kind of rabbi in the community, from your simple synagogue or communal rabbi all the way to the chief rabbis, they lived, ate and prayed and walked the streets and went shopping with everyone. They met up with everyone. As a result, They had a sensitivity to the needs of the community and they responded. Many of us will see that sensitivity and call it today social justice, when indeed it wasn't a quest necessarily for social justice, it was simply confronting the day to day problems that existed in homes, in communities, in banks, in Uh, community institutions, social issues, that in the end, the rabbis were seeking justice within those issues. What I'm going to do today is actually uh, share with you three selections of sources. Hopefully we'll get to do all of them. And we're going to go backwards. Instead of going chronologically and looking from the 17th century to today, we're going to start with the statement of a rabbi who passed away recently. Of the three rabbis that we will study today, this is the one that I knew and consider a mentor in my life. I got to know him for a few years, and he was a student of another one which we're going to study. Let me share the screen, and we'll bring to you uh, the writings of uh, these three chachamim. Okay. I hope everyone could see this. Wonderful. So the first Chacham that we're going to study is Rabbi Avraham Shalem. Rabbi Avraham Shalem, as you could see, passed away in 2014. So he is of the three, the most contemporary. And I had the privilege of knowing him for the last Few years of his life. And in those few years, I really considered him one of the greatest mentors and teachers I have ever personally known. I had the privilege of studying with him in his apartment in Jerusalem uh, almost on a weekly basis when I was in Jerusalem for the time that I would spend in Israel. He was born in Jerusalem, comes from a long line of Sephardic rabbis dating back to the city of Salonika and uh, originally from Spain. Uh, he served as a rabbi in the diaspora. He was in the United States for three years in Seattle and the a part of community. He was in Lima, Peru. He was for 25 years in Mexico City. And then eventually he came back to Jerusalem and he passed away eventually in the year 2014. An actually brilliant human being. Let's take a look and see what he teaches about this whole question of social justice. And about dealing with, uh, and, I, and I start with him not only because I knew him, but because specifically these two words, sdaka umishpat. Okay, these, for those who are familiar, for those who immediately hear the two terms, sdaka umishpat, that come together, immediately this brings to mind the book of Genesis, Sefer Breshit, one of the very, very few times, one of some of my favorite, favorite times in the Torah. Or when God is speaking, thinking out loud, okay? Here, God is not speaking to anyone. God is thinking out loud. And it is the, on the eve of the grand event of Sodom, the whole question of the evil of Sodom. And you'll see that the evil of Sodom, one of the other reasons I chose this is you'll see how this will run as a thread eventually from the beginning here to the very last text we'll study. The evil of Sodom, God suddenly says, shall I hide from Abraham, from Abraham, what I'm about to do? And at this point, I'm in Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Okay, Abraham chapter 18, verse 18, I'm sorry. God says what I consider to be essentially at this point, the mission statement of the chosenness of Abraham. Why did God choose Abraham to be the leader? We never know in the beginning. Finally, here in Genesis eighteen eighteen, God reveals the reason for the chosenness of Abraham and his offspring. God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do with Sodom? After all, Abraham is about to become a great and populous nation, and all the nations of the earth are to bless themselves through him. Why? For I will singled him out, that he may instruct his children and those that come afterwards, to keep the way of God. What is the purpose? Why have I singled out Abraham? Why have I chosen him? We have to look up the mission statements of the Jewish people. It is according to God, no less than God. It is so that Abraham shall teach his offspring and all his descendants to live by the ways of charity and justice. Look at what Rabbi Abraham Shalem teaches about this. In his commentary, on this verse, they shall observe the way of God performing charity and justice. Rabbi Abraham Shalem says, the way of God and our belief in God are rooted in the doctrine of performing charity and justice, meaning it's not simply a nice thing to do. There are so many people today, and I'm sure Rav Shmuley relates to this regularly, that when we hear people talk about doing what we call social action or social justice, they'll say, you know, it's also a nice thing to do. In addition to keeping Shabbat and Kashrut, it's nice every once in a while to go out and feed the homeless. Anybody who reads the Haftarah in the book of Isaiah of the morning of Yom Kippur, not the of the afternoon of Yom Kippur, which is what everybody knows more because it's the book of uh, Moby Dick. And it's because everybody is in shul more in the afternoon than they are in the morning. But read the haftarah that the rabbis chose for the morning of Yom Kippur, and they say, why are you fasting today? Is it not so that you could clothe the naked and feed the hungry, etc.? Right? Rabbi Abraham Shalem connects those ideas to this verse. And he says, derech Hashem, the way of God, and our belief in God, the very idea that our theological belief in God, are rooted in the doctrine of performing charity and justice. Meaning it's not that charity and justice are some additional nice thing to do. They are the core of our values and of our theology indeed. He says, it's not sufficient to treat the Torah as a dry constitution of words. It's not just a book of ideas. He says, if humanity will not blend acts of charity and justice into their intellectual achievements, meaning if all we do is simply share words and ideas, but they're not infused with charity and justice, and we will not work towards assuring truth, equality, and the right of existence for all human beings created in God's image, this is an Orthodox rabbi speaking, without discrimination based on creed, color, or religion, then humanity will impose upon itself and the world, the devastating and destructing Holocaust. He speaks in very warning terms. He says, tikkun olam, the term that we always use, under the kingship of God, l'taken olam Malfut shaddai, what we say if we want to establish the kingdom of God and to fix the world, will only be possible when human beings love one another and preserve one another's rights. All of which can be achieved by performing charity and justice. And then he concludes with a verse from the book of Jeremiah. For it is these values that I desire, says God. Okay, this is from the book of Jeremiah when God, when he says, "Ki ani Hashem, I am God." Again, Oseh Chesed, who does loving kindness, Mishpat Utsdaka, righteous uh, law. And uh, tzedakah and, and charity, ba'aret ki be'ele chafatzi ne'um ha'shem. Those are the things I'm looking for. I wanted to start with this quote because it sets the tone for what I believe is a, a, a chain of teaching that exists in many of the Sephardic communities regarding what we call Tselem enosh, the idea that we were all created in the image of God a human being, the the human rights, the civil rights, if we wanna use those terms, of every single human being and the responsibility for us as religious people, social action is not divorced from religiosity. Meaning somebody will say, what is an act of religiosity? Putting on tefillin this morning, getting up and praying, making sure that my kitchen is ritually sound. Did the Sephardic rabbis write about that? A ton. But they will also say equivalently to that is if that you go out and observe the ideas of tzedakah and and make society a better place, it's not just some nice additional thing to do that makes Orthodox Jews look good. It's not a kiddush Hashem that could you imagine Orthodox Jews who really are only interested in rituals, actually went out and protested uh, the uh, immigration policies. Could you imagine that Orthodox Jews with kippot actually went out in front of a factory where they were mistreating employees and they protested, wow. Rabbi Shalom will say, no, not wow. He'll say, that's no different. Not only is that no different than putting on tefillin in the morning, that actually came first. That is Hashem, in the morning is a reminder of those things. Ukshartam le'ot al yadecha, there shall be a sign. A sign for what? To remind us of what? What it says in the book of Genesis, chapter 18, when God says, Why did I choose Abraham? Why are you, as a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, a chosen person? because of the responsibility of bringing tzedakah and mishpat, charity and justice into the world, that's your responsibility. And that's what Rabbi Abraham Shalem teaches. Now, along those lines, I want to bring in the teachings of the teacher of Rabbi Shalem, Rabbi Ben Sion Meir Chai Uziel. Rabbi Ben Sion Meir Chai Uziel is my rabbinic role model and hero. He is the only chief rabbi, Sephardi or Ashkenazi, to have served in the land of Israel under three distinct political administrations. He became Chacham Bashi of Yafotis, born in the old city of Jerusalem, comes from a long line of Sephardic rabbis on both sides of his family, uh, dating back to Spain. A brilliant orator, writer, teacher and leader, who blended public leadership. He was a chief rabbi in Yafo Tel Aviv. I am sure you have heard of his very famous counterpart that worked with him, uh, his partner together in the Ashkenazi chief rabbi at the time, Rav Kook. You've all heard of him, right? Okay, most of you unfortunately have probably never heard of Rabbi Uziel, Rabbi Uziel's life mission was to bring charity and justice into the world. And Rabbi Uziel uh, served under the Ottoman as a chief rabbi and then was appointed chief rabbi of Eretz Israel, like the chief rabbi of Israel, but pre-state of Israel under the British mandate. And then in 1948 became the first Sephardic chief rabbi of Medinat Israel, the declared modern state of Israel. He was there together with Rabbi Herzog when they signed the Declaration of Independence in 1948, and then he died in 1953. Rabbi Uziel was Rabbi Shalem's teacher. Rabbi Uziel published nine volumes of Sheilotu Chuvot of Responsa titled Mishpate Uziel. Today there are about 25 volumes of Rabbi Uziel's writings in print. Uh, and as Rabbi uh, Shmuley mentioned in the beginning, uh, I'm currently working on a new original English language translation for the very first time of Rabbi Uziel's writings, which will be published hopefully sometime this coming year. Um, I'm working on this together with Rabbi Mark Angel, who wrote a biography that's going to be republished, and uh, together with uh, my new translations, creating a, a new volume. Rabbi Uziel um, wrote a lot about many areas of halacha. was 80 years ahead of his time in halachic issues, Rabbi Uziel, if we adopted only 50% of what Rabbi Uziel said about conversion to Judaism, for example, 99.9% of all the problems you hear in the land of Israel today would go away. Okay, just keep it at that. Now, Rabbi Uziel, um, what did he say? He, he, in his writings, and his teachings of halacha, Um, What we find in the nine volumes is that the majority, again, going back to what I said earlier about social issues, about what halacha would call ben adam lechavero, not ben adam lamakom, halacha that deals with the interactions between people, not the interactions between myself and God. Did Rabbi Uziel write about kashrut? (laughs) excuse me, yes, about Tefillin, about writing Sifre Torah, about all of the ritual issues that we consider Judaism. Of course, he wrote about all that. But when you look at the volumes of his writings of halacha, when it comes to matters of what we would call social justice, okay, or about social issues, it's just not a comparison of how much more he wrote about those issues. This quote that we have here comes from a book that he wrote that's all about widows and orphans. Dine Yatom Ve'almana. He wrote an entire two-volume work called Share Uziel, The Gates of Uziel, that deal exclusively in the laws of how to treat orphans and widows. The vulnerable in society was a very, very big part of his halachic writings, Another Take a look at what he says. The Torah's commandment to support orphans and widows are not merely commandments. Rather, they are obligations for which, if violated, carry the weight of severe punishments on dayanim, on rabbinic judges and the entire Jewish nation. He was very, very sensitive as somebody who trained hundreds of dayanim, of rabbis who actually sat on batei din, and ruled in Jewish law. There are famous speeches that Rabbi Uziel gave when he said, what's the responsibility of being a Dayan? To simply say, I got a job with the chief rabbinate? What's your moral and ethical Torah-based responsibility to do that? So he says, those who evade the responsibility to help orphans and widows, wouldn't we love to hear this Torah today coming from the Rabbanu Rashid, ignoring their suffering Wouldn't we, you should also, by the way, we could teach at another time what Rabbi Uziel did, speaking of ignoring their suffering, what he wrote to try to solve the problem of agunot. Okay? Those who evade the responsibility to help orphans and widows, ignoring their suffering, are narrow-minded enemies of God, not different than those who pervert justice and accept bribes. This humanitarian mitzvah from the Torah, he dared to actually give a categorization and a title to the mitzvah of caring for widows and orphans. And he said, this is humanitarian because it's not only upon Jews to fulfill, but it's a halacha that was given really for all of humanity. For if we evade and ignore the suffering and needs of widows and orphans, all of humanity one day will have to stand and render an accounting before God, this is one of the expressions, one of the nicknames given to God, that God is the father of orphans and judge of widows. God cares, as we say every morning in the Psalms, for widows and orphans. God cares for those who are downtrodden. So we here see a thread from teacher to student, from Rabbi Shalem to uh Uh, from Rabbi Uziel to Rabbi Shalem of this care for those who are vulnerable in society. But they're not writing it as a nice sermon. They're saying, these are the core values upon which Judaism stands. Meaning, if somebody would ask me, what is the theology of Rabbi Uziel? What is the theology of Rabbi Shalem as Orthodox rabbis? Their theology is not rooted in mysticism. Their theology is not rooted in how many pairs of tefillin you choose to wear in the morning or how many hours you wait. They could discuss that at length, but their theology bottom line is rooted in charity and social justice. Let's take a look at the last of the texts. Am I okay with time? I have a little more. I'm doing all right? Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. So now we're going to go back to... The 17th, to the 17th century, 1598 to 1677 in Damascus, Rav Shmuel Vital. Here, we're not dealing in simply a statement, but we're dealing in one of his responsa. He wrote she'elotu chuvot responsa, and uh, here he deals with the question of tax shelters for the wealthy. Let me read to you the background of what this is about before we actually read this section and study, okay? I'm going to read to you from a translation that I made from this tshuva, from this responsa. There was a custom in Damascus, and you're going to see, by the way, how strikingly similar this is today to today. And you'll also think about, for those of Shmuley, if you've been a rabbi of a shul, of a synagogue, and you hear people telling the rabbi, Rabbi, don't get involved in civic matters. It's not for you to get involved. It's dangerous for a rabbi to get involved in financial matters. Stick to religion, okay? Stick to answering questions of halacha. Somebody has a question about tefillin. Somebody has a question about kashrut. Somebody has a question about how to keep Shabbat, how to separate the dishes in the kitchen. That's your realm. Don't get involved in matters that are going to get too messy. So check this out. There was a custom in Damascus that for the purposes of tax assessment, the properties of the wealthy were evaluated up to 3,000 grushim. Grushim was the currency of the time. 3,000 grushim, thereby creating a situation that any properties or financial holdings above 3,000 Grushim were tax exempt. In modern terms, we call this what? A tax ceiling. The rationale behind this was the fear that if they collected taxes on the wealthy beyond this amount, then the wealthy would hide their properties and financial holdings. Ring familiar today? This was the accepted system for many years. It came a time that there were less wealthy families in the community, and the tax burden became greater. On whom? The state, the middle class, and the poor. Again, sounds very familiar. And there remained, according to Rav Shmuel Vital in this responsa, only three to four affluent families. The middle class and poor, who were the majority of the residents requested to annul the tax ceiling favoring instead that the wealthy should pay taxes on all of their holdings. The wealthy responded in the following way by saying that sorry, this has been the custom for many years, this financial system and that they had no intention of making any such changes and that quote, if the community became poorer That's their tough luck, but the rich should not have to bear their burden. Rav Vital contemplated when it was brought before him and he saw what was going on, whether to get involved in this situation. Now, before we read what he says, let's go back again, lest we think the Sephardic rabbis invented these ideas. One of the greatest examples of a rabbi getting involved in order to help those who became financially vulnerable in society. One of the origins of the term tikkun olam in halacha is the, the prosbol of Hillel. This is not Sephardi or Ashkenazi, this is in the Mishnah. When Hillel, it says, Hillel instituted the document when he saw that people were not able To secure a loan, and therefore those who were really in need of securing a loan were suffering because people were afraid to lend, because there were people who were cheating the system and saying, I'll borrow money and I'll pay you back. And then came the seventh year and they said, sorry, can't pay you back. And the banks were afraid to lend money. Who in the end got the short end of the deal? Always those who need it the most, because there are those who are taking advantage of the system. Hillel overturned a ruling in the Torah that said the seventh year cancels debts. And he says, no, it doesn't any longer by virtue of this document. I know the rabbis in the Talmud say it was not the Torah. It was the Shemitah of the rabbis and so on. Nonetheless, Hillel stepped in when he saw a social problem in society. And he said, I'm going to change it in order to make sure that the vulnerable and the needy are taken care of. Rav Shmuel Vital is dealing with the same thing with tax ceilings for the wealthy. Here's what he says. Why should I get involved in financial civic matters? Right, Rabbi, Shmuley? What are you doing as a rabbi getting involved in these things? I hear that all the time. <laughs> Stick to what you know, right? I'm sure you hear this a hundred times a day. Does it not say in Pirkei Avot, he who shuns the office of judge rids himself of enmity, theft, and false swearing? He says, if I remove myself from the situation, then what happens? The city will be destroyed through disputes that nobody will be able to prevent. But if I speak up, I will, of course, acquire for myself enemies. Now, if I speak the truth, even if it won't please those who will be bound to a new ruling, I will ultimately be upholding the honor of the rabbinic position. Why did I become a rabbi in the first place? He says, for we as rabbis, are emissaries of God, the same God who said to Abraham, the purpose of my choosing you is charity and justice. That's your raison d'etre. We are emissaries of God and I will prevent the impression that the law is being inflexibly upheld simply for the sake of upholding the law without any accounting for mercy towards the needy. He says, look what will happen if I don't speak up the appearance of impropriety that the law is being inflexibly upheld just uphold the law and who loses the needy and so he goes on and he says the original custom should be upheld and cannot be changed unless the entire community including the wealthy agree to change it this is the principle of halacha that's what he said he goes you know really we, we should uphold this custom. And it can't be changed unless everybody, including the wealthy, agree to change it. That's how halacha works in a community. However, all this applies when we're speaking about a custom that, from its very beginning, was a proper custom. Then you say the original custom is upheld unless the shul decides to change it, unless the community decides to change it. But when we are speaking about a custom that from its very origins, this tax ceiling of protecting the wealthy, was designed in a way to create financial losses upon the poor and downtrodden, can we say that such a custom would find favor in God's eyes? Is this a custom that I, as a rabbi, am going to be quiet about and say nothing, and I'm simply going to say because... The principle of halacha is that the whole community has to change it. He goes, the whole, this custom should have never existed in the beginning. The whole thing was designed to protect the wealthy. The whole thing was designed unethically. Would God view favorably a custom that takes a middle-class person who has only 100 grushim in savings, and from that he must sustain his family, plus also pay taxes on the entire amount of his holdings? while a wealthy person blessed by God with 10,000 grushim from which he eats, holds lavish parties and continues to amass savings, yet only pays on 3,000 grushim and is exempt from paying on the rest. Okay? Think about this for a moment. Rings awfully familiar to today. Okay? He continues and he says, the rich get richer, while the poor continue in the path of poverty. Remember what we were studying up here, when Sotz da Mishpat, when God, why did God say, these are the values that I desire, this is the way of God to do charity and justice. When did God say this? Right before the whole episode of sdom. What does it say here? He says, Rav Shmuel Vital says, the rich get richer while the poor continue in the path of poverty. This is the trait of Sdom. What is the trait of Sdom? In Pirkei Avot it says, He who says, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours, okay? Zohim midah benonit, he goes, that's, you know, a middle of the path road. And there are some who say, Zohim midat sdom. <clears throat> this is the path of sdom. This is the trait of sdom. Selfishness. When we look in chapter one of the book of Isaiah, the haftarah that we read annually on the eve of Tisha Be'av, Shabbat Chazon. What did, that ha- what did that haftarah call us? The Jewish people. It called us Ktsine Sdom. We started to resemble the ways of Sdom and Amorah, and then God refers to us as Ktsine Sdom, as the officers of Sdom. What does that mean that we're the officers of Sdom? Simply put, we became a selfish society. The rich get richer, and the poor continue in the path of poverty. And all is okay. As long as the rabbi sticks to what the rabbi knows to do and doesn't get involved in people's financial real estate holdings or their taxes, it's not for you to say, rabbi, because you're going to make enemies. But Shmuel Vital made enemies. It wasn't popular when he wrote this shuvah. It's in writing entirely with a lot more detail than I brought here. Of course, he made enemies. Of course, he could have been bought and paid for by the wealthy like we hear in the stories of the destruction of the temple and the Bar Kamsa and Bar stories where the rabbi sat silent and said nothing because they were bought and paid for. This is not the way of the Torah. And the Sephardic rabbis, these three examples that I brought you, I don't think they're, they're unique necessarily uh, compared to Ashkenazi rabbis. There are many, many, many Ashkenazi rabbis who have also been warriors and fighters for social justice. It's just that what we find here, and I could show you many, many other examples if I had the time, that for many of the Sephardic rabbis, by not being in the ivory tower of their yeshivot, by not sitting only in the bet Midrash and dealing with books and with scholars and with ideas, right? they dealt with all of that. Maimonides was a great thinker, but he was also a person in the community. Rabbi Uziel, was one of the most brilliant thinkers. In addition to all of his halachic writings, he wrote a philosophy that matches and perhaps outdoes in many respects that which Rav Kook wrote in Hegione Uziel*. brilliant theological, philosophical ideas. But he was also somebody who dealt on a day-to-day basis with the needs of widows and orphans. The story that we hear a widow telling that when she came to see Rabbi Uziel, and he needed funding, and she said she was cold outside. Not only did he give her money, charity, from his discretionary fund, he also took off his rabbinical gown, the beautiful royal robe that the Sephardic chief rabbi wears. He took it off and wrapped her in it and said, go home with it. Do not walk in the streets cold. These ideas serve as the central core teachings of many, many of the Sephardic rabbis. Indeed, they view Judaism through these lenses. They will indeed argue the opposite. Rabbi Uziel actually argued the opposite and said, now that we have come to Israel, he said this in a rabbinic address in the 1940s to rabbis who were about to become Dayanim and rabbis of cities. He said, now that we have come to Israel and we're no longer in the diaspora, it's time to up our game. And he says, guess what? Once upon a time, being a rabbi was only the realm of ritual. That's for the diaspora. And that rabbis can continue to do locally in their synagogues. But what is the chief rabbinate supposed to do? Deal with all matters that we would call in Israel, that we in the United States would call tikkun olam, that in the state of Israel in in secular circles, they would call tzedek chebrati, social justice. Rabbi Uziel would say this is not tikkun olam or tzedek meaning it is, but he would say this is simply put halacha at its highest level. The halacha, as a matter of fact, when it came to his writing an introduction to the laws of uh, what we call khoshen mishpat, all the laws of civil matters, in his volume on khoshen mishpat, on the laws of civil uh, legislation, he wrote a special introduction and he said, Here, I have to write a special introduction to this because this is halacha. This is what's going to make or break our return to the state of Israel, to the land of Israel, and to build a state. We're not building a state of Israel in order for the Rabbanut to only be dealing with who keeps kosher and who keeps Shabbat. He says, those are not realms of the Rabbanut at all. What the Rabbanut Rashid became in Israel today versus what Rabbi Uziel originally envisioned is is, the, is like from a different solar system. He felt that the Rabbanu harashit's role was to deal exclusively in the matters of national issues, social issues, issues of community and society. It was time to nationalize Judaism, the privatization of how many pairs of tefillin you wear and whose kashrut you hold by is up to the individual home or at best up to the rabbi of your synagogue, not the chief rabbis. So we see here, I'm going to wrap up three samples from Rav Shalem, who I got a chance to study with, uh, and his teacher, Rabbi Uziel, and an a halacha that boldly takes on the, wealthy, the, the privilege of the wealthy and tries to challenge it halachically. And uh, what I haven't brought here because we don't have the time is all of the halachic detail on how Rav Vital solved this problem. I'd be happy to share with those who would like. This is one of the great legacies of many of the Sephardic Chachamim in their quest for social justice. Uh, And again, I was pleased, especially to be talking about matters of social justice in this context with Rav Shmuley, with Uri Litzedek, this wonderful organization, especially on this day, January 6th. Thank you everyone. Wow, thank you so much. Thank you
0: so much, Rabbi Baskila. So much to think about, so much great learning. So, friends, we want to open it up to you for questions. Whether you're in the Facebook Live or we could start with folks here in the Zoom room. Please uh, feel free to unmute yourself.
1: I don't know if there's a. I see question something in the chat. Let me let me unshare. Uh, stop the share. Yes. Okay
0: and if no one is unmuting themselves yet there's a there's a few things in the chat that you might you might want yeah, well. to look at as
1: well. I,
0: I can just read it out loud so that you don't have to punt for the question I posted. Oh great. Great. Um, so uh, Rabbi Buskila, thank you so much for um for all the learning you do and and sharing you do. Um you. I so you you I even, hi, hi there <laughs> great to see you. Um uh, so I, I wrote um, in response to you, uh, mentioning that um, that this scenario of Orthodox Jews, uh, this hypothetical scenario of them protesting at a factory that maybe has abusive labor practices, that it that it's it's not something that should be um, surprising. But then it begs the question: Why aren't more Orthodox Jews um, more active in? social causes, and, uh, you know, so, digging.
1: You know, I'm, I'm happy to address that question. Um, I mean, I think the Mara Da'atra, the, 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 the person who really, the, the, the rabbi in residence of all of this, not only here on this Zoom call today, but in the United States, in North America, is Rav Shmuley and his organization, Uri Litzedek. I'll answer since you asked the question, but I'm doing so in the presence of a, somebody who's a great teacher and activist in all of this, as an Orthodox rabbi. And I think what Rav Shmule did by creating Uriel Tzedek, okay, the, 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 the light of justice, and by making these social issues a very central part, indeed the core of the values and teachings of his organization coming from an Orthodox rabbi, is a huge statement. Because unfortunately, Orthodox Judaism, maybe we can give it the benefit of the doubt and say this. And again, it'll circle right back to Rabbi Uziel so I could answer it from the smartic perspective in terms of what I taught. Rabbi Uziel will say, when we lived in the diaspora and we were living in Anatevka in the Ashkenazi world, I'm using the shtetl from Fiddler on the Roof, we're living in the small Melach of Marrakesh, where my father grew up. We weren't in charge of life. We were always subservient. We had no, even in the United States of America, we were a small community. We didn't really have, we were not in control of our society. The laws in the Torah that deal with charity and justice are laws that are largely legislating a society that lives in the land of Israel. So, when we were living in the diaspora and we were persecuted in the diaspora, the only form of halacha we had to kind of put on hold for 2000 years, going out into the streets and protesting, because who wanted Jews protesting in the streets? Whether we lived in the Middle East, North Africa, or in Eastern Europe, they weren't interested in our going out to the streets and protesting. They weren't interested in our stance on social justice. We didn't really have the autonomy to do so. So our, our Judaism became largely rituals, only a certain section of Jewish law of the Shulchan Aruch. Now we come back to the land of Israel. Rabbi Uziel says the new expression of being Jewish is not new, it's always been in writing. The opportunity has renewed itself for us to create a chief rabbinate which deals exclusively in social matters, bring that to the United States and say the emancipated Jew in the United States of America who was able to march, yes, were there many Jews fighting for civil rights in the 1960s? Many more than we have today, unfortunately, who are, fight, who are fighting for civil rights. What was a great Kiddush Hashem? Although, you know, again, Rab Abraham Joshua Heschel would say, what I did by marching in civil rights, hand in hand with Martin Luther King, was not a kiddush Hashem. Maybe it was a sanctification of God's name, but it was my Judaism. I was praying with my legs. This is what we do. I was compelled to do it, not because, wow, it's really important for me to do. This is what being Jewish is. How could I sit by and just watch and say nothing? What's happening, unfortunately, is that in many, many Orthodox communities, uh, the education is still largely rooted around rituals. And very, very, once in a while, depending on the school, there will be a, uh, an inclination towards also caring about what's going on in society in, so, in matters of social justice. So I think that's why. I think because, you know, the, for a long time, we were accustomed to a Judaism that was largely synagogue and ritual-based, and not going out into the streets, or even a rabbi writing like Rabbi Shmuel Vital did about tax uh, release, ceilings for the you know, to, to, for the sheltering money, for the wealthy and so on, we're saying, eh, that's not what a rabbi does. A rabbi should give a talk. Imagine if you were trying out, to, imagine if Rabbi Vital were trying out to be a rabbi. He was invited to another community and they said, this is your Shabbat sermon where you're trying out to be a rabbi. Imagine if he gave that talk that I read, what would the community say? They would say, you didn't really talk about Judaism. I wish you would have talked about God and all that. And he would say, no, I did talk about God. This is God. God, thousands of times in the Torah says, justice, charity, it's all over the Bible, everywhere. This is God. It just sounds to us today too social. And so it takes organizations like Uri Litzedek and other such teachings like this and elsewhere to bring that voice into our communities, so that please God for for Rav Shuli's grandchildren, they won't need to have Uri Litzedek. It'll be part of every Orthodox school. Now he's setting, you know, he's planting the seeds so that one day, hopefully, the majority of the Orthodox schools, this will be an automatic and no-brainer. That if something's going on in society, of course, as Orthodox Jews or as religious Jews, use the term as you will, we go out and make a voice because. It is what God wants. It is what God asked of Abraham. And it's the essential identity of what it means to be a halachic Jew. Keep in mind that all three of the rabbis that we read, while they never used the term orthodox, it didn't exist during in the 17th century. Rabbi Uziel and Rabbi Shalem never called themselves orthodox rabbis. Those terms were largely for Eastern European Jews. The Aspartic rabbis never used that kind of terminology but they were halachic rabbis, super halachic rabbis, who said the core central values and indeed theology of Judaism lies in the matters of ben adam lechaberot, between man and fellow man, between human beings, and the idea of human rights, of protecting every the right of every human being created in the image of God, irrespective of race, religion, and creed, is the mission statement of the Jewish people going back to what God said to Abraham. So that was my very short and long answer to your short questions. Uh, other questions? Um, uh, or let me see what else was in the chat. There's anything. Um, uh, yes, uh, you know, so, so Rabbi Laurie Green writes that even progressive rabbinical schools never really study these texts. So it, 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 there's no doubt, unfortunately. These texts that I presented today, um, why is it that I'm taking upon myself to translate the writings of selection, of course, not all the writings of Rabbi Uziel, because nobody ever really teaches these texts. And much like uh, Uri Litzedek exists in order to bring the voice of social justice into orthodoxy, the Sephardic educational center that I lead exists by and large, amongst other things, to bring the voice of Spartac Judaism into curricula. I hope that my grandchildren, there will not be the need for an organization called the Spardic Educational Center. I hope that there will never, ever be Spartac Studies classes 100 years from now. I hope that when students sit and study Jewish law, it includes Rabbi Uziel and Rav Kook and Rabbi Soloveitchik and uh, Rabbi Yosef Massas that there's no distinction, that it shouldn't be that we're having an introduction to Talmud and it's a ta- exclusively through the lenses of a handful of rabbis. And then we bring in one Spardic class. That makes absolutely no sense. Um, that's due to a lot, a lot of other issues. But um, yes, uh, these writings largely are not available in many of the rabbinical schools or even in the high schools because they're still in their original, they're in Hebrew and those who cannot access the originals. You know, Rabbi Soloveitchik originally wrote Halachic Man. It was originally an essay called Ish Halacha. Somebody translated and it became famous. <coughs> Heschel wrote his great work, The Prophet, in German. Somebody translated, it became famous. The <laughs> Heschel wrote his masterpiece work on the theology of ancient Judaism, Torah, Torah Mina Shamayim, uh, the heavenly Torah, Somebody translated and suddenly people started to study it more and more. Unfortunately, in the United States, many do not have access or ability to read texts in their original in the Hebrew language. And so it takes the work of translation in order to make the ideas of some of the great, great minds that we've had that all operated elsewhere. Sure. Heschel, we're not American. Rabbi Uziel. Was, did not live in the United States. So, you know, the rabbis wrote in Yiddish and Hebrew and in, in, in Arabic. Somebody wrote a book a long time ago called uh, The Guide, that we call The Guide for the Perplexed. He wrote it in Arabic to a very, very educated literary crowd who read Arabic. Only when it was translated into Hebrew did people start reading it. Otherwise, what was the Rambam's Maimonides'? Morel Nebuchim B would be to the handful of elite who could read a very, very highly sophisticated literary Arabic. Only when we translate, it becomes available. So that's part of what we're doing. We, I, can, if yeah.
0: I can take the privilege of the last question here, um, sure, I, I, even though it's a, it's a big one, I think. Um, you know, in making the move from the interpersonal to the systemic, from the Ben Adam Khabero. Uh, into the governmental. Um, As you said well, and it's important to remind, the Sephardi world is so broad and so complex and has so many components. But maybe you can share some general trends in which there may be more barriers or more ease in Sephardi history in relationship to surrounding Gentile societies to make the leap from the Benadam Lechavero, from the Halachic, into the governmental and the systemic Either whether that's pre-Medina in Medina Israel or in America today. Um, how, how do you think about that translation from yeah. how we treat people individually to how we advocate for policy?
1: Yeah. So for example, it's a great question. And um, again, that could be the subject of a whole talk in and of itself, you know, Ben Israel Amin between the Jewish people and the nations. But for example, Another direct student of Rabbi Uziel, who I didn't mention here, Rav Chaim David HaLevi, he wrote in a very, very famous teshuvah, a very famous halachic responsa. He was a student, he became the chief rabbi of, uh, of Rishon Letzion and then of Tel Aviv for many years. Rav Chaim David HaLevi wrote along teshuvah saying that the relationship that we once had, he said, again, now that we are the government, now that we in Israel are in charge and we are the government, what is our relationship to the non-Jew, to Ben Yisrael Amin? So he says, once upon a time, our relationship, when we look in our classic halachic sources, what was the classic relationship between the Jew and the Christian in Europe? Mipne Eva, out of fear. We have to be involved with their, uh, in, in their celebrations, or we, we have to have good relations because of business, and so on and so forth. Rabbi Chaim David al writes a long tshuva saying, none of that applies anymore. Now we have relationship with with non-Jews because it's the right thing to do, because it's the humanitarian thing to do, because it's the way that a government should behave. We don't look upon them as the goyim any longer. We may have theological differences with them. We may not agree with their religion. We may have political disputes in the land of Israel. That has nothing to do with how we relate to minorities in our state, okay? You'll find in other places, other rabbis writing exactly the same thing, that now that we are in charge in Israel or here in the United States, that we've come to a place where we feel secure enough in our place as Jews to be able to advocate on behalf of anyone, like the rabbi said here. So yes, in the Sephardi community, while again, it's not it's broad, like you said, and it's not across the board. You had many, many rabbis who felt that it was part of the natural process. Much like, for example, with rare exception, okay, the overwhelming majority of the Sephardic rabbis accepted Zionism as, as, a, as a fact and, and, and embraced it and said, wow, what an incredible opportunity for us not to escape anti-Semitism, but to create a Jewish state with a great vision of a light unto the nation and Uri Litzedek and all of that. They didn't look down on it and they said, this is our opportunity to shine and to be able to really make a difference in the world. That difference included how we would interact with those who are not of the Jewish faith, how would we would interact with issues of uh, society and uh, many of them advocated that it was absolutely necessary. All the way down, you know, I could close with this, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, many, many times I teach this, okay? Rabbi Ovadia Yosef is the one who I think put in writing that when a convert's parent, somebody who converts to Judaism and their parents pass away, their Catholic or Muslim or whoever parents pass away, do you say Kaddish? He said, the answer is yes, you do kibbut ava'em, honor your father and mother, these were your parents. You didn't leave behind your mother and father. You changed faith, but you did not leave behind. You adopted the faith of Israel, the ultimate faith, according to you know, what we believe, the, the, the true path. But you don't shun or leave behind your parents. This is a a, a, a midah of, of chesed, of loving kindness, and of darach eretz, which I think I'm I'm always very proud of when I see Uh, The Sephardic rabbis never speaking in derogatory terms against non-Jews, even in Israel, you know, in Israel, there's political uh, tension, so it it creates all sorts of unfortunate outbursts, but in writing, uh, I don't find this uh, kind of uh, rhetoric or these kinds of ideas Rabbi Uziel certainly was not of the belief. I'll close maybe with this. You know, when a rabbi says we'll close, we he has four chances to close, so I'm on two. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Um, rabbi Uziel does not believe that Jews have Jewish blood, that we're superior because we're born Jewish. There's no such belief. He says, "What gives us the privilege to have the city of Jerusalem?" He says, "What is Jerusalem called?" Again, it goes back to the same subject. What does the book of Isaiah call Jerusalem? Kiryat Tzedek. It's a village of justice. He says, what gives us the privilege to have sovereignty in Jerusalem? No birthright. No inheritance. Nothing. Simply if we behave with justice in Jerusalem. He says, where do we know that from? Because why did we lose Jerusalem twice? Because we misbehaved. Because we uh, misbehaved when it came to matters of charity and justice. That's why Isaiah called us Tzine Sdom, officers of Sdom. So he says, our behavior towards widows, orphans, foreigners, minorities, workers, etc., in the city of Jerusalem is what gives us the privilege to have the sovereignty of Jerusalem. Not I'm Jewish, therefore the embassy's going here and I'm there and, and I'm doing, has nothing to do with that at all. It has to do with how we behave in Jerusalem as a people of charity and justice. And he says, Jerusalem is the ultimate seat of charity and justice. So I think we'll end on that uh, good note. Amazing, amazing. I was thrilled to be part of this today. Thank and you so much. Starting the day, and I look forward to, to being with you more and more.
0: Thank now. you. We owe such a deep debt of gratitude to you, Rabbi Baskila, not only for this amazing, inspiring shear, but for the work you do every day, um, to, uh, to to bring to bring the Sephardi Torah, which God willing, one day, like you said, we won't need we won't need these separate institutions to right. bring into the mainstream Judaism what is what what ought to be there at the center as well. But until so just,
1: then, support them, please.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wishing you so much continued bracha and and good Thank things you for coming
1: all here. All the best. So Shalom to everyone. Call Thank you. you. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.
0: Thank you. All the best. Call to. You.